All right, good morning. I think we're recording. We're recording. All right. So, a couple of, uh, of announcements for you, because I know it was really confusing which SPP was due on Tuesday, technically, but have it ready for today. It was number four. Okay, number four, which covered 2 Samuel 4, yes? Right? So, and you're saying, oh, but I already did SPP number three. And, okay, that, that's okay. Here, here's what you can do. We'll, we'll do a swap system so that if you did SPP number three, right, because you thought that would be the logically the next one that was due, uh, then I'll accept it and you can drop one. Does that make sense? So you're like, but I did three and four. That's okay, then you can drop five. Does that make sense? Are you with, does that make sense to everybody how that works? So um, what you need to do though, if you're gonna plan on doing that, if, you're, if you did number three already, and you just need to let me know, Abner, I'm going to drop one. Please accept three in place of something else. Does that make sense to everybody? And I will automatically put that one as a, put that one in a, into the grade book as if you did a different one. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh huh. Yeah, you could just do four and just skip three, and there's no problems. And and if you did everything already, if you did all the SPPs, you were super diligent. Uh, let me know, and, and I can still try to make it worth your while to have done it all. At least give you a pat on the back, and maybe maybe I'll write your name on the board next class, and we can all have a party for you. So. Okay, so does that make sense? If you've already done number three, and you're like, oh, I already did number three, well then you can drop number four. Or if you did number three and number four, you can drop one later on. Does that make sense to everybody? You just need to let me know though, otherwise I won't be aware of this. So send me an email, and we can take care of all your problems, at least in that regard. Uh, the goal for today is to get well, hypothetically, the goal for today is to get to chapter 6. That's ridiculous. That's not even feasible. So, yeah. Sort of. It's Tuesday. Tuesday. Have it uploaded on by Tuesday. Okay, so don't you don't need to panic. But it would be nice if you had it ready for today, just in case uh, we got to chapter 4. Will we get to chapter 4? I have only the Lord knows. Literally. Only the Lord knows. So, yeah. That's the nature of this class. <clears throat> well, the goal is to get to chapter 6. I don't know if we'll get to chapter 4. We are in chapter 2. And we are continuing. Or wait, are we? No, we're in chapter 3. Aren't we in chapter 3? No, we're in chapter 2. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, we have a shot. No, no, we don't. Okay. So, the where we are right now, and I'll give a little bit of review, and then we're going to move forward. Is we're remember we're in that military section. We're in the military section, military proof. And so let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll just see how the Lord establishes the kingdom. It's good. Our God and Father, we depend on you at this time that this time would be redeemed. We so 
we are so utterly helpless apart from you and and really Lord there is no distinction between us and the person who goes to hell the the pagan that deserves eternal punishment but Christ there is no difference between us there is no difference at times between the sins that we do and the sins that they do but it is that our sins are covered and that you have intervened and that you have instead of allowing these evil things we do to work for evil you have by your sovereign hand made them work for good because we are your children and there is there is just no difference in one sense between us and them and and may these texts remind us of the power of your sovereign election and choice not only in salvation but in all other areas where you make a decision it makes a difference tremendous difference even if all human factors stay the same may that effectiveness of god be instilled in our mind and help it help help us and compel us to worship you as the god who actually does something real who actually does make a difference in comparison to our absolute inability and incapability to do anything apart from you thank you for this time and for these fellow believers help this moment be one that honors you and one that encourages the saints give us strength now to be faithful in learning and teaching clear effective Oh God, we depend on you. So be honored at this time in your name we pray. Amen. By way of review, some, some points of review, I guess, <clears throat> to bring to your attention, just because I was trying to hurry. Yes, See, this is what happens. I try to hurry, and then I realize I missed something important. So I have to go back. So there's no use in hurrying. You just might as well cover the thing, and, and then go systematically through. But we're going we're gonna to go back a little bit to to the beginning of chapter 2 I think yep and it's actually verse 2 and and somebody had already mentioned it I think it might have been Kyle or somebody but just mentioned right, look girls that's what that's what I heard in the in the audience here just like the the word girls just you know gals technically and why are girls so important I mean don't don't give me other answers just give me what I'm looking for what does it pertain to? The three G's, which are girl got. Oh, this is much, that was much better response time than last time, but still pretty slow. So, girls, gals, giddy up. Our girls, gold, giddy up. Somebody said girls, gals, giddy up. Hey, don't do that. It's gold. Gold is key. Girls, gold, giddy up. Damn, girls, gals, giddy up. I'm like. Girls and gals are the same thing. That was my original point. That was more of a chant. Girls, gals, get up. All right. Yeah, that, that's a good way to remember. But you got to remember the gold in there somehow too. But uh, I mean, this is the problem, and you already start to see it. God tells David to go up to Hebron, and he brings these wives with him. And you just start to see, uh oh. On one hand, politically, it looks like he's strong. He has this house, the house of David, and it's starting to build and become bigger and more significant and substantial. But at the same time, if you have read the 3G rule, you know this is 
This is the this is the thorn that will kill David. Almost literally. So that's something to keep in mind. Overall, this section that we're in is dealing with David's military prowess. It is dealing with his ability to attack and defend and conquer. That was always the question Israel had when they got a king in the first place, and that's what will get a nation's attention anyway. God is trying to show definitively that David is the way redemptive history is moving. He's the guy you put your money on, so to speak. And, and because of that, God is driven to demonstrate that he favors David, and the clearest way to do that is through military action. So that's what we're going to see. And that's what, this rest of the, that's what the rest of chapter 2 is about, military power. So we were talking about the, the battle, the battle to kind of uh, end all battles, I guess you could say, the major battle, and that was over what region of land? Anyone remember? Yeah, CBP, Central Benjamin Plateau. It's like this diamond region, and Abner has stationed Ishbosheth in Machanaim, okay? And he goes west all the way to Gibeon, which is on the western spur of the CBP, of the Central Benjamin Plateau. And the reason he's doing this, as we said before, was twofold. First, if you conquer CBP, what do you have? The nation. It's the, it's the conduit. You have the nation. So his strategy is, I'm going to secure the entire nation. I've got to get this piece of land. Otherwise, and if I do, I win the whole nation. But secondly, who lives in Benjamin? The Benjaminites. The home territory of Saul. So I need to capture a homeland because that's my homeland. And if I don't capture homeland, I have no home. And, and then... Obviously, I have no place to rule. So there's a twofold. There's a twofold purpose behind this. So Job, Joab, excuse me, meets uh, our friend Abner at the at the pools around Gibeon, <coughs> and Abner suggests what? Let's hold a let's hold a fight. Let's fight. And and let ha- let's have the young men arise. And young men in military terminology in a military context refers to those who have experience and are at the height of their skills and abilities to kill each other. And so let's get 12, let's get heroes to come up and Joab says, yeah, let the young men arise. You know, let's go. Let's let's have at this. So how many do they count? How many people do they have? 12 each. Why? 12 tribes of Israel. The whole thing is supposed to be a symbolic contest to say whoever wins this battle, whoever wins this duel of 12 pair of 12 pairs, they win the kingdom. Does that make sense everybody? You see what they're doing. Everyone, in other words, make no mistake, all that I've talked to you about the geography and all this kind of stuff, if you haven't got if you haven't believed it up to this point, it's real. This was the battle that was supposed to settle who owned Israel. Are you with me? That's why they chose 12 people. But what happens? What happens? They all die. Why? Because they're all, humanly speaking, what? Young. Yeah. 
They're equally matched. Now, could God have allowed one guy to remain standing? Could God have done that? Sure. Could God have allowed all 12 of, on the side of David to remain standing? Could he have done that? You know, he, yeah, he could have done all kinds of cool things. Like, here, I'll give you an oh, interesting scenario. The one guy grabs the other guy first and has no hair on his head, interestingly enough. So he like grabs out his bald head and just, boom, nails the guy and he's dead. See, it could have been that, like, that providential that the guy lost the bet and so he had to shave his head in mourning and, and Joab's thinking, I don't even like you. You're dumb. You have a bald head. Go in there. Go up, Baldy, and just, you know, pre precursor to Elisha. And then we, we have the victory of David in 12 pairs, you know. Or he gets stabbed and God just miraculously heals him. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it now? And just like he gets stabbed and all of a sudden the wound heals and he's left standing. And everyone's like, but you have a knife in your stomach. He's like, I don't care. I'm a hero. You know, I, I just won the battle for David. All those things could have happened. They're all possible. Why doesn't it? See, the re the, what you should be asking at this point is, it looks like what? David, at best, tied, if not what? Lost. And you're thinking, wait a minute. All, everything we've seen so far, David wins. He's the right person. He has a great understanding. He's, you know, he's doing all these kinds of things. He's moving into the, to the territories, and he's got alliances and all these kinds of... And now he lost? Are tied? Doesn't that seem a little anticlimactic? So, what should you be asking? So, what's going on? So, you tell me what's going on. That's not an SPP question. That's just a real question. True. True. Connect the dots. Tie up the loose ends here. Ooh, that's possible, but not yet. Think. What, what do the nations need to see? And why is this important? Here, I'll give you... 20 more seconds to think about it and then I'll tell you tell you something but come up with something good creative even if it's wrong try nope but that's a good guess see do stuff like that Yeah, the all the nations thing is very important. Even Israel is very important in what, looking at something. Well, is it like if one won, the nation was split? It's like, oh, David won and not Abner. So then, like, the armies that fell with Abner, like, oh, now we're like under David, they're oppressed, kind of, but they don't see David as a true king. That, that is partially true. Yeah, this might not have been able to settle the whole thing as definitively. But yeah. No, this was supposed to be the battle to end all the 
battles, and so it's not because God has his own time for when it's going to end. Uh, yeah. But this this is the time. You'll, I mean, otherwise, the rest of the battle becomes meaningless. Right? So what's going on? In every experiment, you need a control. What's that? Any science people here? Or people who know something about science? Yeah, right? You need something f- fake so that you have something to compare to. Yeah, exactly. So what's the comparison here? This battle and the one that, read, read your Bible, the one that follows. Does that make sense? Here's a battle between 24 people and it ends in a draw. What does that tell you? Humanly speaking, the best men of David are just like the what? The best men of Saul. Totally even match. But then, all of a sudden, when you get to the real battle that follows this battle, what happens? Is it an even match? Is it a tie? No. So, so option A is Saul has just less people than David. But that's not true. Seems like they brought about the same amount of people. Option B is that Saul had less good people than David. That seems silly too, right? Because they have about the same thing. They're all under one army in a, in a sense. So David has all the disadvantages. So what's the tipping point? So what's the, tip, what's the difference? In one battle, God does not intervene that's the battle of the 12, the 24. And in the next battle, he what? Does. And we will see the differences between the two. You're, the intention here is God intentionally allows a tie so that you understand something. And it is. Yes, God is king. He is establishing his kingdom. But what he wants everyone to see is, how do, how do you know that I chose David over Saul? Because humanly speaking, they're equals. But my choice is going to be demonstrated in what? When one, even though they're equals, slaughters the other. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see that? That would make a difference. If they're totally equally matched, you would expect the entire battle to end in a draw. But when it doesn't, you're asking yourself the next question. Well, why did that end in a draw, but this one not? Ah, because God chose David. It's absolutely crystal Clear. Does this make sense, everybody? Where Question. Do you, where do we see the intervention of God in the second one? In the second one. Well, you do not see it in the foreground. You see it in the effects. And I'll try to bring out, bring this out. But no, I, I want to save it because it'll, it'll make sense. If I jump ahead and go back, it confuses everybody. So we just say that um, it's in the background. But here, but here's reading strategy, right? Remember when we're talking about compare and contrast David and David in the house of Saul? And one of the big contrasts was what? God told David to go up, but who brought Ishbosheth out to Machanaim? Abner. Remember that? That was the major difference. God says do this, Abner says do this. So the contrast is going to be between who? Not David and Saul, but what? God versus Abner. That's the major contrast. And if you read that major contrast through, then you have to say, okay, here, huh, that's weird. God and Abner seem to tie. 
But then in the next battle, what do you say? Oh no, God slaughters Abner. And do you also start to see, jumping ahead to the next page, why the battle starts to zoom in on Abner and Azahel? Does that make sense to everybody? Like, what's up with that? Why, why focus on those two people? Why not Joab versus somebody else or something? Because they want, God wants to exploit something. God wants to exploit something. But before we get there, so flip back to the normal page, that your other page you were on. Verse 17, this contest ended in a tie. And instead of saying, hey, well, I guess we should just go home now and uh, maybe fight this another day, like, what's a good day for you? you know, they don't do that. They instead say, it's a tie, let's kill each other. And so the battle ignites across all fronts. In verse 17, the battle was incredibly difficult, was incredibly severe. And here's the interesting thing. And Abner and the men of Israel were what? Beaten. Right? Now here's something interesting. The word beaten doesn't just mean like, oh, you beat me in a battle. What is it? What's the other use of beat? That's what we're talking about. Nagaf. They were like pounded, physically pounded, and also metaphorically beaten thereby, right? I mean, that's clear. But we're beaten. We're beaten by whom? Is that what the text says? Yeah, it was before the servants of David. They're beaten by God. Do you see that? It's in the background. You don't, you don't see it, but what... Okay, people who know English, that should be all of you here. How could you have worded this differently to make it active? So-and-so beat so-and-so. Does that make sense? I.e. David, the servants of David, he thought they beat them, beat Abner and the men of Israel. That could have been an equally good, transla- a equally good idea. But the reason that Abner and the men of Israel is put in the passive is because we call this the divine passive. The divine passive. Why? Because God did it, not David. It doesn't even say that they were beaten by David. It just says they were beaten before David. So here David and his men running in battle and maybe they're like, you know, hacking around and stuff and then all of a sudden, you know, David's men running around, hacking around, and they just lost. And you say, oh, but they did it. Well, that's not what the text says. The text says that they were beaten in front of them. And they lose. It's in the background. God had a hand in this. He has a clear victory because of God. That's the thesis statement. How do we know? Next page. Next page. Three brothers. Three, but bro- no, nothing really to do in... Uh, okay, okay. One, one, one overall point in context and overview that you should write down. Okay, you know the story, so I don't need to explain all that happens. But he- here's what happens. Historically, politically, and thereby theologically. Why does the story focus on Abner? Why does it do all these things? Because it's trying to make a point. God is for Israel. Abner's the only one that's defending Saul. There's no contest. That's number one. 
There is no contest between the two. Abner is incredibly weak. And on top of that, Abner's weakness will provide an additional vulnerability for the house of Saul, militarily speaking. Even your strongest asset, Saul, even the strong, the one, you know, it's Abner versus God. Even Abner, he's the best thing you got, Saul. He is actually your weak spot. He's your weak link. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what the narrator is trying to make you see. Abner is a liability. He's not a help. He's a liability. How do we know this? So we got the trio. Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. And Azahel is really fast. <clears throat> uh, does anyone know what Azahel means? It's okay. It's not like terrible if you don't know. But God made. God made. Implied what? Him. And the irony is what? God did make him. God made him like what? Very fast. Right? This is a speed demon. He'd win the 100 meter dash. Swift-footed as one of the gazelles. He is God made him fast, and God made him also to exploit thereby the vulnerability. How does he do this? Azahel chases Abner. Why does Azahel chase Abner? Just from a military standpoint, why? Say it again. Kill the leader, and then what? What happens if you kill the leader? Every, it's all, all bets are off, right? Everything's done. Basically, this is the strategic strike attack. If you can do the decapitation of the leader, everything's over. Very, very simple, surgical, precise strike. Let's just get this thing over with, right? So Azahel's very smart. He's going after Abner, and the purpose is clear. And Azahel, maybe he's thinking, God made me for the purpose of killing Abner. Mm, no, but... It was a good try, and there might, there's an ironic twist here. So Abner looks around and says, is that you, Azahel? And he says, of course it is. And what does Abner try to do twice? Turn to some, kill somebody else, okay? I mean, if you think about this, as a military commander, why, why would, you know, Go kill my friends. You know, like, you're sorry, don't, don't kill me. It, it almost appears selfish, but, and I don't even know if Azahel realizes this, but you should realize this if you're a good reader. What happens now? What happens now? Why? This is so providential. I mean, in this forest of battle, or in the plane of battle that Azahel spots Abner, chases him down, because, okay, situation one, Azahel kills Abner, what happens? Outcome. What's the outcome? David wins. I think Abner is very smart because Azahel doesn't turn to the right or left. He doesn't try to take any hold of the young men for spoil. And so Abner repeats again, turn aside, but what's the difference now? How then, if I strike you to the ground, what happens? How can I, what? How can I face Joab? Now it's going to turn into a what? Personal vendetta. So if, if Azahel wins, David wins. But if Azahel loses, what happens? Personal vendetta 
which will produce what? A death threat against who? Abner. And so Abner still dies, and what happens? David wins. Do you see how that works? Abner and his position is now the greatest liability for the house of Saul. You put all your eggs in one basket, and the one guy who you depend on fails you, what happens? You fail, right? You put all... Basically, this was a huge gamble. The house of Saul gambles everything on Abner, and then Azahel... It's like chess, right? Think about this. They put everything on this one piece, it goes forward, and no matter which way it moves, it loses now. Do you see what do you see why what God has done? And all God had to do was make the one that God made for the task, Azahel, God made this one, push him forward and force the issue. This is a lose lose. Does everyone understand what's going on here? Does this make sense to everybody? Azahel has forced a lose lose situation on Abner. If Azahel wins, David wins. If Azahel loses, David still can win. Which one is a less certain win? Number two, right? But Abner doesn't say, hey, let's just duke it out anyway, right? Abner says what? Get away from me, right? Because what does Abner want? Option three, Azahel neither wins nor loses because Azahel what? Runs away. Do you see? Abner gets it. Abner knows, I'm, if we continue like this, there's no way that the house of Saul will survive. I am now the liability. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you understand why we have vice presidents in the, in the United States of America and all these other things? It's because if you put everything in one person and he dies, it's over. Right? You, know, you cannot do that. You cannot just leave it up to one person. That's what happens to sometimes a megachurch. You know what I mean? The big, the big honcho pastor dies and the megachurch just falls apart. Why? Because everyone put their stock in the one guy. Abner knows that. And he says, uh, God did this. We're in trouble. Azahel is persistent. And then Abner tries to form option four, which is Abner, Azahel neither wins nor loses because why? Abner tries to stick out the blunt end of the spear to do what? Maybe knock the wind out of him, right? If I can knock him out, then I could get away and I can forge my own way of option three or four. Does that make sense? I can knock Azahel out. Azahel won't leave me, but at least I can get away and then I can avoid these two options. But what happens? Now think about this. Is Abner pretty skilled as a military commander, as a military fighter? Of course he is. Does he know how to do that? Does he know how to do that maneuver? Of course he does. So what happens here? Does he complete the maneuver? No, what happens? Azahel dies. Why? God made him for it. God killed him on purpose. He unpurposely allowed Abner for that one moment to fail in his skill. A skill that he had practiced perhaps a thousand times in battle. A skill that he, he was perfectly calm, right? They're just both running, and Abner's like trying to figure out, you know, it's not like Abner's in panic. Abner knows what's going on. 
and yet he makes a critical mistake at the last minute. Why? Because God wants David to win. And so he doesn't let Abner get away with forging the options that would get Abner out of the situation. Does this make sense to everybody? God doesn't let it happen. The servants of Saul were beaten. Who beat them? God. Azahel dies. Why? Because God made it so. Do you see the play on words? Do you see the play on the name? You're like, oh, dude, does God play on names all, all the time, right? Remember Nabal, fool, fool man? Remember that? And, uh, you know, Obadiah, servant of the Lord, Isaiah, God saves, that's the theme of the book, all these kinds of things. Abraham, father of many nations. Of course God does all things. There are no mistakes here. There are no mistakes. So, now, God immediately allows Azahel to die, launching option number two, which is now that the terrible two brothers that are left, Joab and Abishai, now what do they have? Personal vendetta, right? Personal vendetta. And that kind of goes into what Kim was saying. This is the easiest option. Does that make sense? But that doesn't guarantee what? Total allegiance. Are you, are you with me on that? It doesn't guarantee total allegiance. Okay, he won the battle. He won the bet, so to speak. Now we got to submit. Fine, we'll submit. But it doesn't show exhaustive military victory, and it doesn't show how why everyone is going to, in the end, follow David as much as, say, every opposition is wiped out so that all that are left are what? People who want to follow David. Do you see the logic here? Could God have allowed Azahel to catch Abner and kill him? Yes. But it wouldn't have accomplished what God wants. Clear military victory. Clear political unification. Does this make sense to everybody? Are you with me on this? Now, one more thing to add on to this. Do you know how and why kings or people both in ancient time and in modern time lose wars? Because they lose a word that starts with P. Well, it also starts with M, but P is the one I'm thinking of. Anyone know what it is? Not power, not position. That's true, but not that either because you can replace them. What happened in Iraq? Everyone lost perseverance. You get in first, you get in hard. And everyone's with you, right? All the people the United States of America are cheering it on like it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden what happens? Things get hard. You lose people. And Americans are like, bring them home, get out, quit the mission, all these kinds of things. And then there's this massive civilian outcry against the military. Why? It's not like the military didn't understand that this was going to happen, have to happen for a long haul. They understood that. They had already told us that. We just lost perseverance. But what counters perseverance? What, what could provide tons of perseverance if you don't have a what? If you have a what? Personal vendetta. You're not going to rest until the other side, what? Dies. And you just so happen to be the commander-in-chief of the army. 
Does that make sense to everybody? What God is doing here? He is setting up the personal determination of the other side, of David's side, to finish the job and to show the military to be victorious. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you see what God is doing here? Um, have you guys ever read uh, The Horse and His Boy? The story of uh, in Nar- Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote it. And Aslan, everyone remember what Aslan is? You could, I mean, he's a what? Lion, yeah! And so, um, <clears throat> they're, you know, these little two kids are trying to get across the river into Narnia from this other, other place called Calmarin, and they're trying to beat out the army so that they can warn the king that the bad guy army is coming. Does this make sense to everybody? Well, their horses are tired, right? The horses are tired. <laughs> so then all of a sudden, behind the horses comes this lion. Obviously, the lion we know is Aslan, but they don't know that. They're just thinking, oh, dude, there's a lion chasing us because they don't know who Aslan is yet. And the horses, what do they do? Bolt for the border, yes? God instills fear to cause his plan to work in the book. That's C.S. Lewis's point. Here, God instills personal vengeance to fuel a battle so that his plan works. Do you see the parallel? Do you see how this works? How this functions? How this fits together? Yeah. So what was the point then of even sending Eshrael at all? Just to put a little um, extra thought into Abner's mind, a little bit extra fear? Wait, say the question one more time. Like, uh, why even? Why does God even bother then to uh, send Eshrael after him? I mean, just put a little bit of fear in Ab's mind? Not just Abner's mind. But to give Israel the perseverance, to give David's side the perseverance it needed to finish the job. Like to say, we almost got him, we're going to get him next time. Yeah, that's right. And not only that, he just killed your brother. So in, in Israel, in ancient Near Eastern time, if somebody killed your family member, it was incumbent upon you, for the sake of honor, to kill them. And so now they just said, you just crossed the line, Abner. You just crossed the line. Even though Abner's given all this kind of warning ahead of time and all, David's family's not thinking, or Joab's family's not thinking that way. Joab's family's thinking, you just crossed the line. You killed our brother. You knew better than to do that. You knew that was dishonorable. You should have knocked the wind out of him. And Abner said, what? I tried, but no one's going to believe him when the spear goes through him. And look, it was so horrific what had happened that everyone who passes by that spot, what? Stood still. Like, Abner, how could you murder him in cold blood like that? Not even doing the courtesy of using the sharp end of the spear to kill him, which would have gone through easier. Does that make sense? What does it look like now? Abner's not trying to do anybody a favor. He's trying to assassinate somebody in torture. Boom, everything explodes. See the talent here? God is talented. And the author is exploiting that. And you're like, how do I know what you're saying is true? Look at what Joab says. Okay, Abner is running. Guess what direction Abner's running in? Toward the east. You can get that because of the location of Gia. Everyone see that? Uh, It's in uh, verse 24. Everyone see that? They came from the hill of Amma, which is in front of Gia. Everyone see that? Verse 24. He's running east. Why is he running east? If you remember how CBP is laid out. Why is he running this way? He's running back 
<laughs> he's going back to Machanaim. He's like, I'm out of here, man. If I stay, if, you know, why wouldn't he run west? Because that would be stupid. He'd be running toward the Philistines. Like, like why would you ever want to do that? So he runs east back home. You see that? And the further east he gets, the more into the tribe of Benjamin he gets. So he's got family that can protect him. Do you see what, do you see what Abner's strategy is? He knows what's happened. He knows what it looks like. He knows he's in trouble. Everyone's pursuing him. And at this precise moment, Abner calls out from the hill and says, tell your people to turn back. And Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, what would have happened? I would have killed everybody until the day dawned. Personal vendetta? Yeah. Right? If you hadn't spoken, if I hadn't listened to you and gotten sense into my mind about what was happening and I was going to eradicate the tribe of Benjamin, yeah, I probably would have killed everybody. I would have sent the troops over and over and over again until the day dawned. I would have killed you through the night. I would have not stopped. Do you see? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Do you see that in the text? Do you, is, are you with me on this? And you say, man, this is all really graphic and it's terrible and there's tragedy. I understand that. And it's all true. It is all true. And you, and you can't ignore it. And I don't want to just play it off like it's fun. or. But God has an agenda right? God has an agenda. He needs to make something crystal clear. He needs to establish a kingdom the way he wants it to be established. And he has to do it with absolute perfect clarity. So this is what he does. And there's no question now who has the upper hand. Even their strength has now become a weakness and has instilled a personal vendetta, and the military might is now out of control of David. Some questions? Yes, sir. Um, so what did, what did Abner tell Joab that made him turn back? So what, what clicked in Joab's mind? Shall the sword devour forever? Do you, know what, do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? Brother killing brother. This is a civil war, right? And... Benjamin has experienced the civil war before. In fact, if you study history of ancient Israel, this is called the second Benjaminite civil war, which implies what? There was a first one, yes. And there was a first one, and only 400 people survived. What's the bitter end that, that Abner's talking about? Will you really eradicate an entire tribe from Israel over, this, over your personal vendetta? Will you kill everybody? Like you did before? But, the, but you said the mission was accomplished, but it's not yet. Oh, mission accomplished in this. <laughs> getting the ball rolling, getting the explosion started. Oh, Joab's going to finish this. Yeah. Joab's going to finish this. And God's going to ordain the timing for which it will be finished. But God has to make sure that Joab is determined to finish this battle and to be the military hero and to do all these kind of crazy things so that David will be established. So that all the nations are like, whoa, this army? It never loses morale. It never stops until the job is done. I don't think we want to fight this army in battle. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. There's another question somewhere? Well, you sort yeah. of answered it. I was just going to ask, you know, mission accomplished, like he got the personal vendetta, but then he ended up letting it go, so I'm just going to say. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's the mission accomplished, yep, you got it, in the sense of personal vendetta. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when you see how it's done, you'll be like, 
that is just, I mean, it's sad, don't get me wrong, and it's Abner, right? Abner dies, so I, sh- I should be really sad. But perfect timing. You're gonna, and it looks so sinister, and that's why people say, hey, look, David's not an innocent guy. But David has nothing to do with this. Where is David in this story? There is no David. He's home, right? He's, he's the commander-in-chief. He's just sitting there waiting for this to be over. God's fighting for him. God's changing the scene so that it's clear. Does that make sense to everybody? It's ha- Sometimes these things are hard, but you have to look at it from the angle of, if I was another nation looking in, if I was an Israelite, I know whose side God is on. I know whose side God is on. God had engineered this whole thing to make that absolutely understandable to anyone. Does this make sense to everybody? And that's how you have to look at it. Okay. We continue. The contrast between Joab's or between Abner's retreat with his men after this confrontation and Joab's movements toward Hebron is worth noting. Look at what happens. Uh, Abner goes all night through the Arava and crosses the Jordan, walks all morning, comes to Machanaim. What is that? Why, why the emphasis on all night, all morning? They're just going, going, going. Why? Total shame, total defeat. We just got to get out of here, right? Does that make sense to everybody? Oh, total fear. The outcome makes it clear what happened. Abner knows. This army will stop at nothing until we're dead. We're going to lose. We lost the battle that would secure the homeland. It's over for us. We are defeated. This is the posture of ultimate defeat. Joab blows the trumpet. He returns, gathers all the people together. And what happens? Only what? Nineteen besides Azahel were what? Missing. That doesn't mean that they're dead. They're just what? Missing. And you're saying, well, how could somebody go missing? It's not like there's a map, okay? <laughs> we're like, okay, you're going to fight this guy that way. You know, go that way. You know, it's not like that. You just get lost. You're like, oh, I was chasing this guy down this canyon, and now I don't know how to get home. You know, and I don't know where the main battle group is. Or, oh, they're over there, and they're counting people. They must think I'm missing. That could happen. They could have been dead. They could have been missing. But what's for sure? 20 on one side, and then on... Do you also see why Azahel is separated? One, because he's clearly dead. And two, because he's a significant character. But who should you contrast this with? But the servants of David had struck down many of the men. So that how many? 360 versus 20 missing. 360 dead for sure versus 20 missing. What was it before in the first duel? 12 and 12. Tie. But now what? 360 to 20. Is that a little bit of difference? And okay, if you're a nation and you say, hmm, for every one person that dies, 20 of ours are, you know, it's about 1 to 20. Let's just get, or 1 to 18. Let's say that's the ratio. One, one person dead versus and inflicts 18 casualties on our side. That means we have to be 18 times bigger than them to survive. So if they put out 1,000 people in battle, who do, how many do we have to put out? 18,000. If they put out 10,000, we have to put out how many? 180,000. If they put out 100,000, how many do we have to have? 1.8 million. 
Do you understand now what every nation's thinking? Okay, if God is really on their side and they can inflict these kind of casualties, I'm not going to fight them. Are you crazy? I'm not going to fight it when there's 1 to 18 casualties. Look, in Ameri- with Amer- that's why no one likes to fight America too much, because all you do is drop big bombs that annihilate big, a bunch of people. Does that make sense? And I'm not trying to be callous here to the loss of life, but you can't withstand those kind of casualties. Does that make sense? Now we have American kind of ratios in ancient Near East, and these are unheard of. You, you're used to what? One kills, one dies. One to one, maybe two to one ratios, right? Go play a video game like Age of Empires. It's actually relatively good. You, if you get one to six, you're considered incredible on that game. You know, and if you do anything above that, you're cheating. You know, here you have one to eighteen. That's three times the cheating mode. You know. There's just no way you can compete with that kind of battle tactic. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see what's so clear? Before, everyone sees, oh, everyone's strong, one to one. I get it. One to 18? I don't get that. God's on, God is on their side. They have a military. They have a military that is beyond belief. Any questions on this? They bury, Joab buries Azahel and and then they go up triumphantly to Hebron. And there was a long war between these two tribes because Abner's trying to hold out, but it's not very successful. And day by day, David just grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul starts to disappear. That's the outcome. It's absolutely obvious what is occurring. Any questions? Good. Military has been established. Now, <clears throat> the question is, context and overview of the next page, national unification. National unification. You really need to understand that what makes a Davidic, what makes a true king of Israel, a true king of Israel, is that he can unify all of Israel. Even in Saul's day, Israel wasn't totally behind Saul. We say that he's the united monarchy, but and it's true, because there was only one king at the time over Israel. But it doesn't mean that Israel was under Saul in the sense of fully supportive of him. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. But what will prove that you are a true king a real king, is if your leadership is so charismatic, so compelling, that everyone in Israel, friend or foe, all becomes your friend. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, You might not have agreed with Obama's policy, but did you see in the campaign, I was in I was in Israel when he campaigned. And Israel, I was kind of uncertain about him, but if you talk to the young people in Israel, they loved the guy. They thought he was awesome. You know, and the Arabs loved him, and, and the Europeans loved him, and, and, he, and a lot of Americans loved him, right? Did you see how they just all came toward him, right? You never saw such enthusiasm before, right? That's the kind of unity we're talking about. But not just for those who liked Obama, for everybody in the nation. Are you with me? That's what the, that's what the world needs to see. If a person can unify a nation in that manner, he's the right king. 
And this is the point of the next section. This is the next stage. Yeah, he's got a great military. Everyone's afraid of him. But he also unites a nation like no one before. Um, I might add something here quite quickly. Uh, and it's just a joke. But it's a joke that proves a point. Uh, <clears throat> I, in Israel, we usually have this guy at Ibex. And if you haven't gone to Ibex, I really I encourage you to go because then you can tell all these jokes and see that I'm not lying. Uh, that the guy, there's a rabbi who gives a kind of a Jewish perspective of what it means to be Messiah, right? He's not a Christian. He's not a believer. He's Orthodox Jewish. And he comes in and he starts to give this talk and he says, one of the things that the Messiah must do in Judaism, in the Jewish perspective, is unify all Judaism. Okay? Unify all Judaism. And in the Jewish mindset, anyone could be a Messiah as long as they do this. All right? So he, you know, he goes into the classroom and says, now they got, you know, the Messiah must rebuild the temple, and he also must unify all Judaism, and everyone in the classroom, he says, every time he says that, laughs. It's ridiculous. You can't unify. Do you know how many political parties there are in Israel? There's like 83. You know? We have like two, three or four. I mean, and the other ones aren't major. You have 83 political parties in Israel. How, how in the world are you supposed to unify everyone? No one can agree about anything. And all that they can agree about is that they can disagree. You know, it's like, so, you know, even, even how to read directions, they don't even agree on. I'm like asking them, so how do I get here? You know, A to B. Oh, take a left, take a right. No, no, no. Take a right, then take a left. No, take a, you know, go straight. You know, there is no straight. It's a roundabout. You know, it's like, well, it doesn't matter. Go straight. You know, that's, they kept telling me to do it. No one can agree about anything. It's crazy. That, that's what drives, I think, some Ibex students crazy, is that Jews, all they do is argue with each other. I mean, it's, it's just a blessing to see sometimes to illustrate this point. <laughs> I mean, like, the, the most sane place was the United States Embassy, and even that was crazy, because no Jew could agree on what directions to follow to get in line for the... It was just crazy. And, it's, and you just love these people because of this, but it illustrates a point. If you're going to unify the hearts of these people, you've got to be pretty good, don't you? They're all united in the hatred of a... You know, if I asked 10 Jews, name your best political candidate, they would give 12 answers, Right? Because one would change their mind and then another one would disagree and name another person. And then by the end, no one had the original candidate that they already had. But if I said, who do you hate? The current government. Who's in the current government? All 12 candidates. I mean, it's just, this is the way they think. And they're not afraid to say it. It's, It's a good thing. It was interesting preaching Romans 13 to them because it really communicated what it means to submit to your government. This is hard. If you can unite the Jewish people, you've got to be pretty charismatic. Not the theological kind, the leadership kind. Does this make sense to everybody? It's true. So, let's talk about national unification. <clears throat> oh, but first we have an interlude. As I call it, the Davidic House Part 1. Cross-reference verse 2 uh, of chapter 2 earlier here. Um, but sons were born to David at Hebron. This is kind of like a check. And we, we see that, oh, maybe this is a way of telling us that David's house strengthened. He has all these wives and all these kids. Yeah, from a secular point of view, that would be true. But what are you thinking right now? Three Gs. 
And who do we have born in this first set? Amnon? Amnon is later killed. By who? Anyone know? Amnon, first of all, he rapes his sister. That's what you should know, right? Everyone remember that? This birth is not a good one. Chiliab means weak. He probably died because he got sick. That's my guess. I'll support it later, but you'll get the picture. And the third one, isn't this interesting? Who's this guy? Who's the third one? Absalom. What is Absalom famous for doing? You guys know this. Yeah, a coup, right? A revolt. Yeah, for his hair. Yeah, he's got great... Well, it technically says his head gets stuck in the tree. But for fun, we can say his hair got got him there too. Josephus seems to indicate as such. But, um, yeah, Absalom. Do you see the problems that are starting to arise? You multiply girls. Oh, yeah, it looks good until what? All the sin is exposed, and this turns into one chaos, and Absalom tries to kill you. Oh, it looks good. But it, big problems are coming. Trust me. Big problems are coming. You should have spotted them a mile away. And you'll spot some more as we get into this next part. The way we are going to see how David politically unites is two ways. First, <clears throat> because one side will collapse. And so you do it by contrast. One side is going to collapse. The house of Saul is going to collapse. And by studying the collapse of the house of Saul, you're going to be able to see, oh, huh, they are terrible, and yet David is strong. That's how we know David is united. That's how we know David is strong. But also, what you're going to see is because the house of Saul collapses, David really has this exhaustive and extensive reach. So you see it by contrast, and you see it by assimilation. You see it by contrast, and you see it by assimilation. So it came about in verse 6 that there, while the war was happening, Abner was making himself stronger and stronger in the house of Saul. Okay? What does that mean? What does that mean? Paint the event for me. What is going on? He's like rallying troops. Oh, yeah. He's, he's getting all the power, right? He's getting all the power. He's, he's manipulating the situation because Ishbosheth is just nothing. He's a no man. Uh, he's manipulating the situation so that if Saul wins, who actually will become king? Abner, of course. That's what's going on. Now, Saul had a concubine. Her name was Ritzpah. She comes later. <clears throat> and and Ishbosheth accuses Abner of going into his father's concubine. Now, for us as um, modern-day Americans, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, yes, it was wrong for him if he did to sleep with that concubine. There was a sin, but why should Ishbosheth get so mad about it? <clears throat> Anyone have a solution for me? Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's why in the Old Testament, for example, in Genesis, Reuben goes into his father's concubine. Why? To say, I'm going to be the next dad. I'm going to be the next father in charge. Does this make sense to everybody? <clears throat> Same thing here. The assertion is, 
You've gone into Saul's concubine. You're saying you're the next, you're the next Saul. You're the next king. Does that make sense to everybody? That is why, even the whole description, Saul has a concubine. Her name was Ritzpah. This was her lineage. That's why the text gives us all the background. It's not just any concubine, it's the royal one. Uh, by the way, by the way, just to give you a sneak peek into the future, what story does this sound really a lot like? Absalom going into David's concubine. Is there any accident by putting Absalom's name at this point of the text, right above the situation with the concubine? No, there is no accident. It's totally intentional. To show you what? what? Why, what is this trying to show you here in this text? The house of Saul is politically unstable. It's about to collapse. And then when you get to David's house later on, and Absalom's there sleeping with the concubine, what should you think? This is just like whose house? Saul's house. David's house is unstable, and it's about to collapse. And that, on a big picture level, shows you something. Is David's house just like Saul's house? Yeah. In a lot of ways, they're not different. What's the difference? What's the difference between David and Saul, just like we saw in the battle before? What's the difference? God. God's choice. God's determination. That's the difference. And the faster David understands that, and the more thorough he understands that, the better he will, and the better you will understand this book. Remember how I kind of said, you need this divine Messiah to come in? Remember that? This book will teach you that. This book will show you that. Do you start to see that already? David, as a human, can't do the job. He can't accomplish anything. He's no better than just another good kind of guy at fighting and at leadership and all these kinds of things. That's not what tips the scales. God does. You start to see that, and I'm going to try to help you see that more and more. But anyway, let's focus on the collapse of the Saulite house because it's really, really good. What's Abner's response? And what should it should have been? What should it have been? Or what would you expect it to be? What's Abner's response? What? He's angry. And he says some things. What does he essentially say? Sum it for me. Saves your life. And this is how you treat me? I'm going to do what now? What is he going to do? I'm going to give your house to David, right? What would you expect him to do under an accusation like this? If somebody came up to you and said, why did you kill the president? What would you say? What would be the first thing you said? I didn't. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the easiest thing to say? Or, I did and I'm proud of it. Or, I did, shh, don't tell anybody. You're not going to just say, hey, I'm loyal. I don't care if you're a loyal patriot. Tell me if you did it or not. We don't know if Abner did it or not, right? 
Maybe Abner did. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. But here is where you have to learn a little bit about politics. Ishbosheth is a weak and incompetent man. His name means man of shame. Okay? His original name might have been Ishbaal, man of Baal, just a totally decrept and wicked man. And so, who's the strong one? Abner. Who do you not offend politically? The guy who's propping you, right? And so Abner knows, it doesn't matter if I did it or not. I own this situation. You don't say something like this to me, you're dead. But notice that that was the push because who has control over the Saul House? Abner. The push for Abner, who's already uniting, whom God has already providentially allowed to unite the entire house of Saul <coughs> to bring the house of Saul to David. You see, you could convince everyone on an individual level to follow... Or let me, let me back up. Remember how I said? You win, a mil, you win a decisive surgical strike against Saul. People will come to you, but they really won't be for you. Does this make sense to everybody? But now what do you have? Everyone's really going to be for you. Because who's now just went, gone into David's court? Abner, the hero of the Saulide house. Do you see how God's moving here? He's going to get massive national um, unification accomplished. Notice what he says. He swears a life and death oath. May God do so to Abner and much more also. If I do not accomplish this for him, verse 10, to transfer the entire kingdom. The entire kingdom. What do we mean by that? All the authority and dominion and the right to reign from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David. That's the agenda. What we need to see is that David isn't just a good leader, isn't just a nice guy, isn't just a military leader. He's what? He has a real throne, a real kingdom. And Abner says, I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to make him a king. He's had that done already, right? He, who did Abner make a king before? Ishbosheth. He's had some experience. I'm going to make him the king over Judah, not only over Judah, but over Israel from where? Dan to Beersheba. You have everything here. You have the reign and the sovereignty that is required for a kingdom. And by the way, for those of you in Minor Prophets, this word kingdom is not the same as the other word kingdom. The word in Obadiah emphasizes the kingly, king's sovereignty. This kingdom emphasizes what? The physical land and the physical subjects that are going to be submitted to the king. Does this make sense to everybody? Oh, for Minor Prophets, that is. And, and you're like, oh, I never knew that there was a different kind of kingdom. Yeah, it, it's not a different kind. It's just a different emphasis. But I want to have David have a united political state. From where? Dan to Beersheba, the entire place. Intensive, comprehensive, everywhere. And not only that, I'm determined. This is life or death. I will die doing this. And what's the irony? He does. Yes? Um, so why does this event with Ishwashev cause him to want to do that? It's a huge slap in the face. It, it would be like, this is, this is what it basically said. You've done all this help for me. 
I don't care. I think you're a scumbag. He's like, if you're going to treat me like that, I'm out. I'm out. That's basically what happened. Yes. Yeah, because 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 now he knows. I mean, he still the personal vendetta is still there. Yeah. <clears throat> that is possible. That is possible. But I think he believes his third way out is to become king, and therefore to have the protection of Benjamin around him. That's my that's my thinking. Yes, sir. Wouldn't some people also say that um, that it would be more Abner doing that David is uniting the kingdom instead of God because everything that's happening, it's like Abner all of a sudden. Precisely, precisely. So what has to happen? Show himself, right? Right, and who has to get out of the way? Next page. Who gets, whoops, two pages. Who gets out of the way? Abner, he's assassinated. Remember how I talked about timing? Yeah, timing. And you hit it on the head. You hit it on the head. Everyone see where this is going? Abner has to get out of the way so that it's absolutely clear that it's not just because of political scheming that gets David into the kingdom. It's who? It's God. So that means Abner has to what? It's like Romeo. Abner has to die. You know? He has to die. I don't even know. I just took that off the movie title. Maybe Romeo doesn't die. But Abner has to die. He has to die. There's no choice in this matter. And God will get rid of him. But when you see how he does it, and you see the effects of it, you're going to be like, whoa, this is just, this all just all fits together perfectly. We haven't gotten there yet, but you, you know why, what's coming and why it has to come. Very, very good. Ishbosheth doesn't stop David. Notice verse 11. He can no longer a- answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. There is no opposition for this. Ishbosheth is just too weak. And so Abner is unhindered in his efforts now. There's, the reason unification can happen is because the other side collapsed. There was no opposition to it. And there was complete affirmation of it as Abner goes to David and says, Who is the land? Who, bo- who owns this land? That's the idea. And obviously his aunt. Abner's answer is David owns the land. Make a covenant to me and I will make sure that I bring all Israel over to you. What does all Israel mean? All of it. Every single last thing. This is a political establishment. Now, two things. What does David request for here? Michal, his wife, who's also whose daughter? Saul's daughter two reasons that this is important. First, if Abner can secure Michal, that means basically Abner is what? In control. I know that you're in control and you're serious about this because you can do what I asked you to do. You can do this very hard task. Do you see that? But second, the fact that the text emphasizes and David emphasizes Michal's daughter, or as the daughter of Saul rather, shows what? If David claims her, brings her into the royal palace or into the royal court, his own royal court, what does he now have? 
What is he now? He's a son of Saul. That means he has the right to the throne. Right? Do you see David's strategy here? Providentially, God had David marry into the house of Saul so that later, David takes the throne over the kingdoms, both by conquest, both by a charismatic personality, and then on top of those two things, by birth, by birthright. Yeah. Is, does this show anything about David's approach to the throne? Because doesn't God promise him his own throne, like, and not and like a, new, a new king? Um, so we see him trying to continue like an old, the old throne, essentially. Yeah, this is probably not a continuation of the old throne, but remember, the context is what? National unity. So Benjamin's thinking, we will follow the house of Saul. And what does David say now? I am the house of Saul. I am the real king. And so now it's a massive uniting or uniting factor. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, good job. You guys are thinking well. Next page. So what happens? He earns political unification by birthright. Uh, Ishbosheth is still so weak. David says, "Give me my wife back," and Ishbosheth's like, "Okay." You know, there's this one. <coughs> you're like, "Come on, man, put up a fight." He doesn't. And one commentator suggests this because he recognized that uh, what what Saul did to David so many years ago in First Samuel 25:44 by giving his wife, David's wife, away to a different man was wrong. Now, what all you know from Ishbosheth. That would be totally out of character, right? This guy's a sleazebag. He's weak sauce. He doesn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, I have a godly moment. No! This guy is just weak. David says do it. And who's in the background? Abner, right? Saying, you will do this. Or what? I'll kill you? Oh, that, that would be a good reason. And they, they go out. And poor husband, Paul Thiel, Paul Tiel, you know, he's, he's crying like a baby. And it doesn't matter. Because Abner tells him what? Go home. I love it. <clears throat> Get out of here. Abner is enforcing David's right to the kingdom. There is no illegal maneuvers here. David unites the hearts of all. And here it's by political treaty. Notice what happens. <clears throat> Look at Abner's efforts here. He goes to the elders and says, you in the past were seeking what? Look at what it says in verse 17. You were seeking what? You were desperately trying to make this happen. What was, what, 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 what was supposed to happen? David to be king over Israel. You want this. See the, see the rhetoric that, that Abner is using? You want this. Your heart's in this already. So what? Do what your heart desires. I, as, your en- as the enemy of David, am telling you to do what you want to do. <laughs> Think about that. How many times... Okay, I'll, give, I'll get that to, to you in a second. But do it. Because this is what God wants you to do. This, this is how David is supposed to be. Not only does Abner speak to the elders of Israel, notice that. Who does Abner also speak with? Benjamin. Elders of Benjamin? No. The whole tribe. Abner goes on a grassroots campaign, so to speak, 
in the entire tribe of Benjamin. Why? Who's, it, who's going to be the hardest to convince? Why? Because Saul's from there. This is Saul's family. Saul's family will basically have to say, we don't have the kingship anymore. We don't have all the perks. Now goes to Judah. Do you see how hard this is going to be? And so Abner makes a grassroots effort. By the way, Abner is a Benjaminite. So he's speaking as one of them. And he goes down and he says, you guys got to do this. And then he finally brokers a deal. Right? And notice the deal in verse 19b. Abner went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. What does that mean? He tells to David, here's the treaty. And everyone what? Everyone likes this. Everyone likes this. Here it is. Here's what unites the entire kingdom. Does that make sense to everybody? And David says, good. Let's have a feast. Let's make this treaty. Let's make this covenant. Let's be the king. He brokers a deal that is actually good. <clears throat> a deal with Benjamin? A deal with not just Benjamin, all of Israel. What can it deal? We don't know. It's probably just the terms and agreement. You're going to be our king. We want you to be our king, but make sure these things happen. And David says, yeah, no problems. I'll make those things happen. Everyone's happy. But here's what Abner goes out to do. Here was what Abner goes out to do. Let me arise and go gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you and you may be a king over all that your soul desires. But I thought they already made an agreement. Why is he going back out? What's the idea? Politically, this is the way it is, but now what I want it to be. Not just political, I want it to be personal. Does that make sense? I want every single Israelite on board. And there, and if every... Every single Israelite is on board with David, then David can reign to what? All his soul desires. Does this make sense to everybody? This is a unity that you've never seen before. And here's why the picture is so much more astonishing than I think you ever realize. Presidential election, right? Let's just put this real simple terms. You have a Democratic candidate and you have a Republican candidate, right? Does one candidate ever say to the other candidate, I like you a lot. You're so much better. I'm a scumbag. I'm nothing. I hate my side. I hate my politics. I hate everything about me. I want to make, I'm going to go on a campaign for you. I'm going to go, forget about the Republican campaign for, for me. I'm going to use all that money, all those resources, and I'm going to campaign for you. Vote for my, my opponent in the next election. Do you ever see that? No. That would make no sense. That guy would get assassinated. You have it here. You have it here. Abner is campaigning for his enemy. Does that tell you how united the situation is? Right? Does that tell you how united the situation is? What's the only thing that could probably destroy the, the whole campaign that Abner's doing? Is if you what? Tarnishes credibility with all of these actions like the butt of the spear and the guys. Yeah, you could tarnish his credibility or you could do one simple, very, very simple thing. Kill him. And that could stop the whole peace process. Especially if somebody killed him on David's side. Because then what would it look like? What would it look like? David used him. That could totally ruin the entire peace and unification process. Does that... 
Does that make sense to everybody? Well, guess what happens on the next page? That's exactly what happens. But we won't find out until next week uh, how that all works and what all is resulting from there.